When I see somebody who says I'm addicted to sex, what I hear them saying is, I am afraid of my sexual desires and I worry about my ability to control them. And I say to them, I'm not afraid of your sexuality and I'm not sure you need to be either. Self-acceptance and self-compassion increases our ability to exert self-control over our sexuality. And I think those are the things we should be working towards. Cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy are the only treatment models at this point where there is scientific evidence that they increase people's ability to exert self-control over sexual behaviors or pornography. We should be working on those things and promoting those ideas rather than turning sex into this boogeyman. I'm Alexa, and you're listening to That Sex Check, a Soulfire production. That Sex Check listeners, hey, I have to tell you, I'm a little bit fangirling here because I really, really like the perspectives of the guests that's coming on to the show today. Not only that, they feel right and real and true, and I've really enjoyed digging through his content, listening to him be a guest on other podcasts, and there's something about his message that just really feels right and good and true to me. It might not feel right and true and good to you, but I'm excited to have this person onto the show so that we can dig into a subject that I know a number of you have a big question mark on, or you just have a lot of assumptions around. And I'm really excited to de-shame and debunk and have an open, honest, real conversation that can help you open your mind if you're open to it. So should I call you Dr. David Lay all together every time I address you or just- Oh, dear God. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, with all of the bad things people call me, (laughs) if you want to call me just David, that is lovely. Great. (laughs) Well, David, thank you for taking the time to come onto the show. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the opportunity to come on shows like this and talk about this information. As we were starting and you shared that you're kind of a bridge of information, I think that that is so important. It's one of the things that I think is so cool that podcasts like this exist, sharing this kind of information. As a clinician, as a researcher, a psychologist, seeing accurate information, or at least just having people wrestle with some of the complexities of human sexuality and psychology is so important because unfortunately, most modern media takes a really superficial kind of approach. And as a therapist, as a clinician, I live in the gray zone where things are complicated. And I think that it helps people to wrestle with that complicated stuff because humans are not simple. And human behavior is not simple, and particularly sexual behavior is the most complicated, overdetermined behavior that exists. And so anybody that presents a simplistic kind of answer to it, I think is doing a disservice. So that's a long way of saying, Alexa, that I think that what you're doing is really cool. And thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I love that. And I hear this complex and unpredictable, all these things about human sexuality. And then I zoom out a little bit and I go, and there's some trends. And a lot of the certain types of research, I use air quotes there, Mm -hmm. suggest otherwise or models say we don't follow the fact that there's predictability, but also so much diversity. Look at the individual in front of you and see them 
and be with them and connect with them on a human level. There's so many things that factor into judgment and shame. And uh, this is definitely a subject that has my heart. And I want to dig right on in. This is something that I've been playing around with on the show. Instead of having guests come on and be like, oh, so how did you get into Mm -hmm. what you do? It's more like, let's get into the heart of what we want to discuss. And I'm sure that aspects of your journey are going to weave its way through the story. But I'll go right into the conversation we're having today is about sex addiction. Also, I have a question mark around porn addiction if we get group those Mm -hmm. two things together or if they're looked at separately. And I am showing up to this conversation as a student. You know, I've heard you speak and I've read information and I've got your newest book next in my Audible list. So I can't wait to listen to that one, which I know is about a totally different subject, which even just referencing that subject, I feel myself get a little hot. So I'm excited for that one. <laughs> <laughs> and so for those who don't know, it's about cuckolding, right? Yeah, yeah. It, technically it's my first book. It's called Insatiable Wives. And a dear friend, Rose Caraway, who is the narrator of Kiss Me Quick erotic podcast, she and her husband had been after me for years to get that book on Audible as an audiobook. And interestingly, my publishers kept saying, we don't think there's a market. Other people were saying, yeah, we think there really is. So Rose, delightfully, we partnered and she narrated the book, which is amazing because nobody wants to listen to me for hours like that. <laughs> and it's extraordinary. And so it's selling like hotcakes and it has really generated a lot of renewed kind of attention around those issues. So it's kind of my newest, oldest book yeah. and it's really exciting. I'm glad you're going to be listening to it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to give it to my husband too. And he's like, just trust me and listen to this because we have a shared Audible account and we're like that intertwined. He's going to open it one day and be like, what is this? Huh? And just, you know, randomly listen to it. This is an interesting cover. I bet it's about history. (laughs) A cool thing is that couples are sending me pictures of them listening to the audio book on road trips together. Mm -hmm. So then it becomes this kind of part of their relationship journey. And again, that's exciting because as a therapist, as a psychologist, you know, I can sort of touch one or two lives at a time. Time. But as I write and as I speak, as I do things like this, I get to get those messages out there to much larger audiences. And it's just so cool when people yeah. write me and say, you know, talking to you or listening to you or reading you has helped me realize the role that sexual shame was playing in my life and how much negative impact it had. And now I'm enjoying my sexuality more. I like to think that in heaven, I will get credit for all of the orgasms that people have had after reading my work, because otherwise I'm not sure I have a chance to get into heaven, but that (laughs) might put me over the edge. There you go. Guys, we're like, how many orgasms did he help to elicit in? All right, fine. Let him in. We'll just pass on all the rest of the stuff, you know. That's right. Amazing. So topic for another day for sure, because I do poll my audience every so often. I'm like, if I could talk about anything and every time I'm starting to get less and less with my audience of like how to keep the spark alive. And it's more a little bit specific types Mm -hmm. of kink or fetishes. And I'm really excited to see that because they're kind of past that initial, well, how to just connect again. It's like, well, what about cuckolding or what about hot wifing or what about, you know, so again, topics for another day. Today, we're going to talk about sex addiction, porn addiction, and the people that get those diagnoses. Not technically a diagnosis, yeah, but we can go there. Sure. People who are told that they have that, right? And people who love those, that they assume that about them or make excuses 
that they are maybe partnered with someone who has that, shows that behavior. And so I realize sometimes when clients or people in my community reach out and they say, well, I'm partnered with someone and they are struggling with porn addiction or how do I love them through porn addiction? So let's break some of that down. Let's jump in. And I'm not going to be like Jordan Peterson in that annoying recent clip where he says, you know, well, what does do mean? And what does you mean? What does believe mean? (laughs) But I think we do need to clarify a couple of things. One is that sex addiction and porn addiction are not diagnosable. They've not been present in any diagnostic scheme of the American Psychiatric Association and the World Health Organization for decades. And in fact, every time they have been presented over the past 30, 40 years, they've been rejected because of poor science. There's very, very little scientific evidence that supports the idea that sex or pornography can be addictive when we think about what we understand about the concept of addiction. And in fact, for DSM-5, which is the current APA manual, sex addiction was just roundly rejected for lack of science. There was a concept of hypersexual disorder, which was kind of close to it, but it was rejected because of a really significant concern that people, that there would be a lot of overdiagnosis. And so one of the criteria in that concept was the idea that if you have on average an orgasm every day for three to six months, that is, quote, too much. That is a sign of too much sex or unhealthy sex. But recent research published a couple of months ago found that that would pathologize around 22% of men and around 10% of women that there are lots of people out there who are having daily orgasms and have no problems related to it. So there is some real risk that if we start throwing out this kind of idea that there is such a thing as too much sex that is unhealthy for you, that it's going to pathologize people. Now, that's where my questions really kind of start in terms of challenging some of these things, because in fact, people who have more sex live longer. Couples that have more sex have healthier relationships. So the idea that there is some kind of bend in the curve where sex is healthy, 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 and then all of a sudden it turns unhealthy when you reach a certain number, there's no evidence for that. But what we do find is that there are lots of people who identify as sex addicts or porn addicts and have much less sex than other people who are not struggling with it. So gay men and swingers, for instance, have lots and lots of sex, but because they have found ways to integrate that sexuality into their life and their social life and their relationships, it's no problem. So what we then start to have to do is we have to start now drilling down into why would one person self-identify as being addicted to pornography or sex, and another person wouldn't. And we have to stay with the self-identification for a second. And what the research has found really, really clearly since about 2015, I published my book, The Myths of Sex Addiction in 2012. The next year, the American Psychiatric Association rejected the concept of sex addiction. And then a couple of years later, this flood of research around these issues started. And what that flood of research has now indicated is that the self-identification of being addicted to sex or pornography is uniquely predicted by one variable, and that is growing up religious or in morally, socially conservative families. 
And Mm -hmm. so what we have now is the idea that there are people who grew up with certain very conservative, rigid rules around what kind of sexuality is appropriate. Now they are adults and experiencing thoughts around those sexual behaviors. They may engage in them or think about engaging in them and then feel bad and shame. A unique thing happens. The more shame and conflict they feel about their sexual desires and behaviors, the less self-control they feel like they have and the more likely they are to feel like they are addicted. So feeling like you don't have control over a sexual behavior is different though from not having control. And research has examined these folks that say, I feel like I have no self-control over my sexual behaviors. But when we sit them down in a lab and test them, they actually have just as much impulse control and self-control as anybody else. But they wish they didn't have these sexual desires. Now, I feel badly for those people because it hurts. Yaniv Efrati is this Israeli researcher who I'm just a big fan of. And he has done research that shows that when religious people try not to think about masturbation, they think about masturbation more, right? Don't think about that naked white elephant. And if you do, you're a dirty, rotten pervert and should hate yourself. (laughs) So unfortunately, the very shame and self-hatred that these people develop around their sexual feelings leads to them experiencing less self-control and it becoming more prevalent. And so it's this spiral effect, which is why self-acceptance and self-compassion around our sexuality and our sexual feelings appears to reduce this conflict and increase people's feelings of self-control. The sad thing is that the sex addiction model promotes an abstinence goal. You should not masturbate. You should not watch pornography. You should not think about any sex other than sex with your spouse, right? which is paradoxically going to increase those feelings because now you hate yourself when those thoughts or feelings come up. So the self-identification of sex addict or porn addict is really an expression of what we're calling moral incongruence around sexuality. There are lots of clinicians out there that do, quote, diagnose sex or porn. Yeah, yeah. They label it. But again, what is interesting is that consistently research finds that therapists who label sex or porn addiction are more likely to be religious therapists, right? So again, we see that this is a social, religious, moral issue over sexuality. And then lastly, when we look at partners, and again, one of the sad things that I've had is talking with people who are saying, well, my partner is a sex addict and that's why he cheated on me, or that's why this, or that's why that. And, you know, I have this sad job sometimes of saying, well, what if sex addiction isn't a real thing? And what if it's the case that your partner is instead engaging in selfish behaviors that don't take your needs into consideration? And people have said, you know, it's easier for me to think that he's a sex addict and it's not his fault and he can't control it than to hold him responsible for that behavior. 
Now, when we look at people in sex addiction treatment worldwide, consistently what we find is that around 90% of them have a major mental health diagnosis, most typically anxiety or depression. Around 60% of them have a sexual disorder such as a paraphilia like pedophilia, but unfortunately they are in treatment for quote unquote sex addiction. It is most likely at this point for those folks that the sexual behavior is symptomatic or an expression. So for instance, men with anxiety disorders very commonly find that watching porn, masturbating, or having sex is one of the only times they can make kind of the anxiety in their brain turn off for a little bit. And so then they overuse that coping strategy. Men typically have fewer coping strategies than women to cope with negative emotions. And so they overuse those few coping strategies that work really well. What I tell guys is, you know, it's fine for you to look at porn to turn off your anxiety. But if that's the only coping strategy you've got for your anxiety, we might have problems. Because if you get really anxious and worried during a business meeting or during a PTA meeting and you pull out your porn to look at, that's not going to go over real well. So what else can you do, right? If you're kind of getting the thread here as I talk about all of this, the point is that I call sex addiction and porn addiction sexy shiny object syndrome, where when sex is present, we get distracted and we chase after that, which unfortunately leads to us doing a disservice to people because now we're saying the sex is the problem when really there are other problems that we need to help this person with. And if we don't, we may unfortunately lead to them suffering more. I'm pretty passionate about trying to help people and help people deal with the real problems. But saying it's sex, eh, that's simple. It's lazy. I want to deal with the real issues. So I just gushed a whole lot. I'm sorry. No, it was beautiful. (laughs) You know, you answered several questions that I would have loved answered for our audience too. And I think back whenever my husband and I first got together, I was in this work already. So I've been developing community and having really open and honest conversations for about six years now in sex, love, and relationship space. And it really started with me blogging and writing about my personal experience through all of it and it sounds very formal to say, and denouncing the Catholic faith. You know, I grew up in South Louisiana and what's so kind of fucked up is I look back and like my family's not even religious, but I just went to Catholic school. And so, you know, my mom had no idea what that was going to wind up, how that was going to, you know, affect me. And I went from like, I don't know, ages seven or eight, until I was in eighth grade and then went to high school. So I was able to like go and come into womanhood with a lot of those notions. Then in public school where mm-hmm. everyone's doing something different. And to her, she's like, well, I just thought you needed more structure because mm-hmm. my biological father wasn't present. And so I was like, I just thought I was doing the right thing for you. I'm like, mom, do you have any idea how this fucked me up? You know, but now we can joke about it. You know, like she's been on yeah. the podcast too. Oh, cool. She's like, I, I look back and I'm like, I don't know. I was just doing the best. And I go, I know. And I love you. And I'm really grateful that we can have this open dialogue where you can see the things that I've had to navigate. I'm definitely the emotional daughter when my sister's like nurse practitioner <laughs> in oncology for like 20 something years. And then I'm just the one that's like, everyone feel your feelings. Come here. <laughs> let's actually talk to each other instead of like layering stuff on top of the surface and like trying to play nice. But anyway, when I first got together with my now husband, I've been in his work, I don't know, a couple to a few years. And he was into like 
men's work and he was learning tantra just kind of like the spiritual bro where he was learning bioenergetics and breath work and biohacking and all of that I remember at the time he was doing things like no fat November and he's like leading challenges and talking about previous porn addiction and all these things and then he met me and I went what if all of this is bullshit mm-hmm And he was like, what are you talking about? Because normally he kind of prided himself on being open and vulnerable about it. And then I went, hey, that's not going to fly over here. Tell me other things. What is under the surface of all of that? So, okay, cool. You went through a whole November, not jerking off. What'd you get on the other side? Unless you did some deep introspection. And like you were saying, like started coping with anxiety or depression or feeling lost and helpless or hopeless or without purpose or any of that, unless you found something else to help you navigate your life. Well, when November's over, well, then a couple weeks into December, you know, just like one mm-hmm. time, two, it's no big deal. Then the next week, two times the next week, you know, it still feels kind of good. I've got an okay relationship. And the next thing you know, we're back to regularly doing it. And that's not, there's nothing wrong with that unless the individual is feeling shame. Yeah. That they shouldn't be doing it. And Jordan, my husband, he comes from, his grandparents were pastors of a, evangelical Christian church where they're like slaying the spirit and holy laughter and a whole, you know, like the Catholic in me is like, that's not real. <laughs> like, just let me just judge your judgment. You know? <laughs> so anyway, that's how we started our relationship. And I've been able to pose a lot of questions to him and go like, what's really there. And now when he works with his men's groups and his circles and all that, and then he gets to inspire questions that are way deeper than, mm-hmm. well, how about just treating the sex, treating the action, yeah. treating the symptoms, so to speak, and go like, what are your withholds in life? What's the shit you're afraid to tell people, tell us, tell the men in your life? How do you feel now? A little bit more expressed. There's a little bit of the truth that's now out. So you're not replacing that with jerking off and ejaculating. Right. Now you're like right. actually right. letting the stuff out. Yeah. And doing some work with it. I mean, you can imagine that I hear a lot from and about the kind of, as you said, NoFap November kind of groups and stuff. And what I say is that sitting down and having a conscious examination of the role of your sexual desires, your sexual pleasure, your masturbation, your sexual fantasies is a really healthy thing. Thinking about how you want to integrate those things into your life in a conscious way is super positive. I ask people, you know, who is your sexual role model? How did you learn to make sexuality a healthy part of your life in an ethical kind of conscious way? Most guys have never thought that way. And they really only think about their sexuality when they're turned on. So I think it's healthy to sit down and do some self-examination to think about sex when we're not turned on. Because when we're turned on, our brain is functioning differently and it is less impulsive. Our disgust reflexes are turned off when we're turned on. And I think it's important to think about our sexuality. But unfortunately, the NoFap kind of models, they really are based on these extremely antiquated ideas of heteronormity, of masculinity. They come straight out of ideas hundreds of years old, even promoted by Kellogg that invented Kellogg's cornflakes, that too much masturbation makes you a bad person. It makes you blind. 
M makes you blind, which actually it's interesting. I mentioned hypersexual disorder that was a model that was presented to the APA. And they actually cited Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush was a physician who signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776. And he was a physician that believed that he is the inventor, in fact, of the idea that masturbation makes you go blind. He treated masturbation with leeches. Let us not think about where he put the leeches, right? But it is believed now that what he was seeing and blaming on too much masturbation or too much sex was actually the untreated symptoms or effects of untreated syphilis and gonorrhea, which lead to brain problems and blindness when they go untreated. So again, it's a great example of blaming the effect for the cause, right? And mistaking those things. The no-fap kind of groups, unfortunately, the online anti-porn groups, they are cesspits of white supremacy and anti-Semitism and violence. There have been multiple killings, mass killings related to these groups in Atlanta. The guy who went to several massage parlors and killed people and was on his way to porn studios in Tampa. He had grown up religious and had been in porn addiction treatment, and he went to kill people because he thought that was the only way he could abolish temptation in his life that he couldn't control and was afraid of. That's terrifying and sad and a really good point that the abstinence porn addiction model is not working. After 40 years of the sex addiction model existing, there is almost no evidence scientifically that this model has any positive effect. It is at best an experimental treatment still after 40 years. That's a problem. And I think it's exploitive, unfortunately, that therapists are out there charging people for it. And I think it is a even bigger problem that churches like the Church of Latter-day Saints, like the Southern Baptist Convention, are referring people to sex addiction treatment to address this moral conflict that the church itself is creating. I can hear some of my family in South Louisiana going, ain't that some shit? Yeah, right? Ain't that some shit? You know? Yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary. There's some really neat research that examined the way churches have been talking about pornography, for instance, and that show roughly in the early 1980s that conservative churches started shifting from talking about pornography being immoral to pornography being addictive. The argument is that it was essentially a way to kind of medicalize this moral conflict so that they didn't have to deal with the moral issues. Right. Well, I mean, sex has been, in a lot of ways, people over the years trying to pathologize it and figure out a way to make it right, wrong, treat it. You know, when there's so many other, like you said, this is a symptom of something that's deeper. So I am curious, especially for our listeners, if they have, let's say they didn't know any different. Because I mean, I know when you, part of your story is that when you originally started sharing this information, I'm sure like most people who are like, aha, I realize, alas, this is not what we think it is. (laughs) I am ready to share what I have found. And then through history, people going, no, let's ignore that. No, shame that, put that down. And so I know that when you first came onto the scene with some of this information, it was almost like revolutionary. That's one very nice way of saying it. Um, Yeah. Alternatively, you know, cue the death threats and lawsuits. 
threats. Right. Yeah. That's what um, I mean. That's what I mean. Revolutionary to the yeah. extent of the first wave is like, we got to shut this shit down real fast. Yeah. You're not lying. Can't even count how many times I've been threatened with lawsuits simply for saying these things with the very clear attempt by the folks that are making lots of money off of this to shut me down and prevent me saying it. None of those suits have ever been successful, right? I'm still out here with this big mouth, but it says something to me if when people are not willing to engage critically with these issues. Now, I will say that I hold out, I'm scientist enough that I hold out the possibility that there are people out there who are experiencing difficulties with sexual self-control who do not have a moral conflict, a personality disorder, anxiety conditions, substance conditions, relationship conflict with desire discrepancy where they want more sex than their partner does. It is possible that there are people out there struggling with sexuality who don't fall into any of those other categories. I just haven't ever found them, and there's no research demonstrating that they exist. If they pop up, and it's possible that they will, then... I think it'll be really, really interesting to understand why they're struggling with sexuality when they don't have any of these other sort of conditions that would contribute to that. What else is there? But if they do exist, they are a very tiny number compared to the very large degree to which society is throwing these terms around. I mean, over the past few years, 22, 23 states in the country, United States obviously, have passed proclamations that pornography presents a public health crisis. And the concepts of porn addiction are infused in this legislation. And they're saying that, you know, pornography changes people's brains. It actually doesn't. They're saying that, you know, it is affecting young people's sex and the Utah proclamation, which was the first, says that pornography is leading to young people not wanting to get married. Well, there are lots of reasons young people aren't getting married and porn is really actually not one of them. Society is changing, right? And the unfortunate thing is that first, these are all conservative states. And it is always a religious conservative legislator who introduces this legislation. And unfortunately, in many cases, like in Florida a couple of years ago, and this was right after the Parkland shootings, the Florida legislature declined to pass gun control legislation. And then the same day passed legislation declaring pornography a public crisis. So again, it's this sexy, shiny object syndrome playing out here. There is some distraction going on here. And look over here, be afraid of sex. I refer to the modern media and, frankly, now our political system as an anxiety industry. They want you to be nervous so that then they can exploit you by giving you easy answers. The world is scary, and I don't think those easy answers and distractions are making it any better. Right. It's like, have this thing go on inside your body or inside your mind. Here's this pill. Here's this thing. Right. Here's this method. Here's these steps. And a lot of the step-by-step -step processes Right. Even though it's claimed to be non-denominational, there's a religious background to a lot of them. Oh, yeah. To be clear, the United States Supreme Court has ruled that AA and 12-step groups are inherently spiritual organizations. And it's actually a violation of separation of church and state if courts order people to attend AA because it is spiritual. And so the letter of the law, in fact, is that 
courts must offer a secular alternative. There aren't very many. There's one, I think it's called Smart Steps, and it's based on cognitive behavioral therapy, smart recovery, self-management and recovery training. And it is secular. Unfortunately, it's not as accessible. The 12-step model, it's attractive to people that like your husband grew up religious, but aren't religious anymore because those religious framings and underpinnings are still embedded yeah. in our psychology and our thinking, yeah. even if we don't know it. Totally. Totally. Makes it easy. Yeah. And so that language, do this, do that, listen to me, do what I say, uh-huh. it sneaks in, especially when we are afraid, mm-hmm. when we're struggling with this internal conflict and how we can preserve our relationship. And it's not by accident that the idea that sex addiction really catapulted to success and influence in the early 1980s when our country was struggling with HIV and the AIDS crisis. And all of a sudden, anonymous sex, promiscuity, too much sex, gay sex could kill you. Dangerous. Yeah. And then we all got really pretty purity rings. That's right. That's right. (laughs) These things follow a trend. They are all connected. And now Tina Shermer Sellers is a therapist and a sex therapist in Seattle area. She has a lovely book called Sex God in the Conservative Church, and it explores the impact of the purity movement and how she as a therapist has been working with people around the anxiety that comes out of it. I sound like I'm down on religion. I'm really not. Religion plays an incredibly healthy part in many people's lives. Being religious, being part of a religious community reduces the chances of developing a mental disorder or a substance disorder, but it increases the chances of developing a sexual disorder. Being religious is a risk factor for developing a sexual disorder because it builds this internal conflict over our sexual desires. It tells us that there are certain right kinds of sexuality. And if you want something other than that, there's something wrong with you. Right. And you have this whole community and your partner that are here to help you through it. Because you are flawed and are a sinner. And so we'll help save you. And you just have to do these things and repent this way. And when you say sexual disorder, what are some examples of that? Well, particularly in women, you know, vaginismus, which is inherently an anxiety condition. Right. And so you're Mm -hmm. talking painful penetration. Painful penetration, difficulty with penetration in men, erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation. As we talk about pornography, you know, there's these online kind of claims that watching too much pornography causes erectile dysfunction. Then there are guys that are out there saying, well, look, I can get hard just fine when I'm watching pornography. But then when I go to be with a partner, I lose my erection. It must be porn's fault, right? And porn did something to me. But in fact, what research demonstrates is that men who have any sexual disorder, premature ejaculation, delayed ejaculation, or erectile dysfunction are many times more likely to experience symptoms of that dysfunction when they are with a partner as compared to when they're masturbating. Because when we're masturbating, we don't have to worry about anybody else, right? The internet is really easy to turn on. All you have to do is push the button. You don't have to buy it dinner. You don't have to talk nice (laughs) about it. You don't have to worry about the internet's orgasm. It's not worried about your performance. It is. Yeah. It's not how hard or how hard you're going to be or how long you're going to last. And so the guy gets to relax and enjoy the experience. Yeah. 
which being with a partner is wonderful, but it's work. You have to be mindful. You have to be present. You have to balance all those things. And many of these guys remember anxiety. And so these guys, what research demonstrates is these tend to be men with limited sexual experience and high levels of anxiety. And when they go to be with a partner, those factors combine to create sexual dysfunction. And then they blame it on pornography. What about women? It's interesting that pornography has almost no evidence of negative effects on women or BT folk. It appears to only be white religious men that pornography has a negative impact on. How dare it? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) African-American men show almost no negative effects from pornography. Again, this is really coming out driven by that moral conflict. Women, these issues come out in the anxiety as related to, you know, painful penetration, suppressing desire. Where I really see this coming out, though, for women is as they are struggling to understand and accept their partner's sexual Yeah. And again, it is because some of these unhealthy, kind of unrealistic, inaccurate messages around sexuality have gotten in. And I think back, I mean, like, you know, the purity movement and the idea that young women shouldn't wear spaghetti strap dresses because bearing their shoulders would inspire uncontrollable lust in their male student counterparts. Well, that's a fucked up message because it's saying that men are responsible to gatekeep sexuality and that males can't exert self-control over their sexual arousal. I worked with sex offenders for decades and I will tell you, men can control their sexual behaviors and they may choose not to. That is a different question and issue. But when we tell males that they can't control their sexual behavior, that's where we end up then with these really unhealthy kind of messages around porn and sex addiction, that it's not your fault. Sex made you do it. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like that either, of course. When I was in school, I remember a couple to a few times throughout my time at at Catholic school, which was only like a blip in the whole timeline, but it was a very important blip, you know, my age range, like very impactful, you know, having school uniforms and having the girls kneel in the hallway Mm -hmm. while the teachers came by with a ruler to make sure it was at least, it was six inches or longer above the knee. And the message that, you know. Yeah. It it makes for a fun schoolgirl Kind of like that's right. It's, it's pretty kinky, <laughs> kinky, right? It makes that it like a fun kinky thing to have a bunch of you know females in little Catholic school outfits bent <laughs> kneeling down in front oh, yeah. of somebody. Oh, oh. Yeah. you kneel in front of front of God. You also <laughs> kneel in front of the teacher. Yeah, here's my ruler. Yeah. Right, we can't be over sexualizing you all. Yeah, we're and we're gonna girls. shame you. Yeah, we're gonna shame you for being over sexualized. Yeah, how dare and you? Gonna, and then we're gonna create the taboo that is going to make that sexualization really exciting. I mean, it is really insidious how all of these things work together and build in these trends that then they turn around and weaponize. Yeah. Speaking of weaponizing like sex addiction and and that whole thing, I have a a really good friend that's also been on the show because he's gone going through sex addiction therapy, going through the model and then coming out and then being, what is it? Not a supporter Whenever you go through the model and you help other people. Yeah, sponsor. Sponsor. That's what I'm looking for. Supporter. Sponsor. Yes. Was a sponsor for a long time, was a speaker, all these things. And then I'm pretty sure a part of his story and letting that go was I was the first person to meet him face to face and go, I don't think this is real for you. And I'm like, 
maybe, maybe not. I want you to hold on to whatever you need to, but it sounds like if you want to take on someone who is addicted to and that you're in recovery and now this is something that you live with for your whole life, I was like, you and your heart and your soul, I don't believe this for you. I think that you're more than this. And come to find out his story is that he cheated in a partnership and she said, I will only stay with you unless you go to sex addiction therapy. Right. So that's weaponizing again, weaponizing, but I don't want to necessarily blame or fault the woman because she doesn't know. That's right. And there are churches that do the same thing. You know, if you engaged in this inappropriate behavior, say gay sexuality, because you're a sex addict, you can stay in the church. But if you're just gay, then you have to leave. It's not by accident that most people who are sex addiction therapists and are promoting the concept of sex addiction themselves identify as sex addicts. And it's why they get so angry at me because I am inadvertently challenging their worldview and their belief in their ability to stay within the lines and control their behaviors. I get it. And I don't mean to take that away from them. But when I see somebody who says I'm addicted to sex, what I hear them saying is I am afraid of my sexual desires and I worry about my ability to control them. And I say to them, I'm not afraid of your sexuality and I'm not sure you need to be either. Mm. Self-acceptance and self-compassion increases our ability to exert self-control over our sexuality. And I think those are the things we should be working towards. Cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy are the only treatment models at this point where there is scientific evidence that they increase people's ability to exert self-control over sexual behaviors or pornography. We should be working on those things and promoting those ideas rather than turning sex into this boogeyman. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe this will be my last question for now. Thank you. This has been incredible. And I'm so glad that I get to catalog this episode and copy and paste you know, copy the link to the show and send it out as a resource and say, just start here. And then tell me what questions you have after that. Because again, I like to bridge. So when someone says, I listened to it and now I have all these questions, where do I go? Well, then here's my menu of referrals and recommendations. And here you go, go here. So who stands to gain by keeping the sex addiction therapy model? And what do we as community, as people, what do we stand to gain? Should we dispel it yeah. or refuse it? Boy, what a nice question, Alex. I've never been asked that. Well, to be clear, there are several very large lucrative industries, the infidelity industry, the sex addiction treatment industry. How crazy the, is it that you just said the infidelity industry? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. There is. I mean, yeah. I mean, when people doing lie detector tests and capitalizing and, on oh people in quotes, cheating. Absolutely. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, those folks, and uh, along with the religious industry, (laughs) which is also an industry, (laughs) about bringing in the money and keeping the faithful where we need them, they benefit financially and they benefit from control. Because again, by making you nervous about sexuality, they can manipulate you. I mean, there was a reason why the Nazis forbade masturbation in young males in Germany, because they knew the guys were going to jerk off or want to jerk off. And by creating that insecurity and self-hatred, it made them easier to manipulate. 
So when people are promoting these ideas, they are trying to manipulate you. And we need to pay attention to that. Right. Some people have a really hard time accepting that. Yeah. Like, no, yeah, these people I, can't want right. ill of me or want to control me. What are you talking about? Like, this is yeah. light and love. You know, yeah. Jesus I mean, is well, my guy. Yeah. And like, I mean, the NoFap industry, they are making millions off of promoting this kind of insecurity and this pseudoscience. Who stands to gain? What do we stand to gain as we challenge this? Well, I think that first and foremost, couples are able to have much healthier relationships when they start accepting the humanity of their partner's sexuality. When we start having compassion for ourselves and for our partners, when we start understanding that sexual thoughts do not equate to sexual actions, I think that we get to have much more honest, open, real relationships with each other and with ourselves. I think also the people who are struggling with these issues have the opportunity to get actual help for their actual problems, as opposed to getting distracted by the sexy, shiny object. Our society has changed dramatically over recent years around sexuality, the birth of the internet, the rise of, you know, 50 shades of gray, the laws promoting marriage equality, all reflect significant social changes in acceptance of sexual diversity. Those are really, really powerful. But at the same time, right now we are seeing states wanting with the abortion Supreme Court decision with laws around transgender children and individuals and on and on and on. We're seeing a backlash around with people rejecting this move towards greater acceptance of sexual diversity. The pendulum is swinging back because people are really afraid of other people's sexuality and they want to contain it. I think we have to get through this for the pendulum to swing back. And we need people to stay healthy and not accept these messages that they should hate themselves for these sexual desires. Mm. Amen. (laughs) So good. Yeah, I appreciate you. you. Yeah, I yeah, appreciate likewise. the work that you do. It's so powerful. It's so needed and necessary. And I'm sure that everything that you shared on today's show, you've said so many times over the years. And I appreciate the fact that you were willing to share it again. <laughs> Absolutely. I didn't know that I was being Don Quixote and, and getting on my swayback steed and tilting <laughs> at these windmills. But God damn it, those fucking windmills need to be taken down. Yeah, um, yeah. Fuck those windmills. <laughs> Fuck those windmills. There you go. Yeah, that, that should be on my card. Fuck yeah. those windmills. Yeah, exactly. What's his once Don Quixote's little fella, his sidekick? Sancho, Sancho Panza. Panza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. So people who want to hear more, because I know I had a whole little list of questions that I could ask you and to double click on certain subjects like, okay, so like, what do you do if you're the person who's partnered with someone that believes that they're the sex addict? And like, how do you, there's just... Mm-hmm. There's so much more to the conversation. If people want to hear that from you, like your style, because I like your style. I have the people on the show that are the tantra and the flowy and the feminine and the masculine and the this and that. And then, you know, I like to have those sprinkled through the episodes. And then I like science grounded, Mm -hmm. what I consider real, (laughs) Yeah, you know, blending the esoteric generic kind of vibe. So let's say some of our audience really vibes with you. Where can they find you? What would you suggest them to dig into first? I know your yeah, Twitter is one um, of those things. 
Yeah, my Twitter at Dr. David Lay. My last name, even though it sounds like get laid, you know, and yeah. with last name Lay, I had to be a sex doctor or a politician involved yeah. in a sex scandal. Uh-huh. Um, I went with sex doctor. <laughs> my name is actually L-E-Y if mm-hmm. you have trouble finding me. But at Dr. David Lay on Twitter, my website is uh, davidlayphd.com. My third book is called Ethical Porn for Dicks, A Man's Guide to Responsible Viewing Pleasure. And it really unpacks and explores a lot of these issues in a very accessible way. I wrote the book so that rather than me talking about science, it's me talking with you over a beer about these issues. And you can find that actually a hard copy um, through a group called the Sexual Health Alliance that I do trainings for on a very regular basis. And those trainings are for therapists and for the lay public. We have lots of folks come to those talks exploring all these kinds of issues. Because my third book was out of print and hard copy. They got the rights and have it printed so that they can sell it and send it out to folks that want a hard copy. Amazing. Again, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Alexa. I mean, we kind of mutual admiration. This is how the world changes by hearing people talk about these ideas, by challenging some of these simplistic answers and by learning to accept ourselves and other people is how values and societies change. So thank you for being part of it and letting me join you course my snaps on that last note and we'll throw it out there in the not too distant future if you want to come talk about cuckolding we definitely have a spot for you (laughs) yeah absolutely always happy it's a fun conversation and what's interesting is the way that world has changed i wrote that book back in 2009 and now here it is 2022 in january on twitter they celebrated cuckold appreciation week week i saw Uh, Yeah. As people are accepting and being accepted for having this shameful desire. That's a really cool thing to see. Totally. And so I will say goodbye for now, but I will also share a to be continued. Sounds great. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. If you loved it, be sure to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. And if you extra, extra loved it, make sure to leave a five-star review. I'll see y'all next week.